Well, all right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Sada's Cloud and Clear podcast. My name is Brian Sook. I am one of the associate CTOs here at Sada Systems, and I will be your host for today. I'm thrilled to have today with us Richard Soroder, who is a director of outbound product management at Google Cloud. And, you know, if we take a step back and look at him, Richard really kind of does it all. Like in addition to leading a team focused on products and customer success, he also has a bunch of courses on Pluralsight. He participates in a lot of public speaking events and he's always blogging. And I can tell you, he's always tweeting really cool technology stuff all the time too with the latest and greatest trends. Uh, so yeah, welcome to the show, Richard. We're excited to have you on. Yeah, it's a real privilege to finally get a chance to chat with you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Uh, so just really want to start off, I, we typically start off just by letting uh, the guests speak about themselves a little bit so our listeners can get to know you. So uh, we'll start off with just an easy one. <laughs> you know, you got you got uh, 16,000 Twitter followers, which is pretty impressive. And uh, just with the whole social media thing, how do you, you know, being a part of Google Cloud and being a social media influencer as well, just how do you feel about that in general? <laughs> I think like 15,000 of those are bots, but nonetheless, they're very attentive bots and they reply a lot, which is terrific. Uh, no, it's, it's great that uh, there's a chance to talk to people in that sort of forum. You know, my vibe is hopefully I like to share not only my own thoughts, but more importantly, try to elevate others, whether other people are talking about and thinking about. And I uh, may try to maintain a bit of an optimistic tone. I'm not a particularly... Uh, I don't know. I don't like the dog products or vendors. It's just, hey, here's what people are learning. I think people seem to click with that, which is why whatever a decent number of folks follow. And it doesn't hurt to be part of Google Cloud where people do pay attention to what Google has to say. So I try to take it seriously. I think our, our CMO told me just you can go as far to the line that doesn't get you fired. So like you're allowed to push the envelope here. We're not supposed to be boring. We're Google. You're allowed to be a little, you know, have some fun with this. And that's uh, that's a good privilege. But at the same time, hopefully, uh, it's nice to be handed the car keys and say to drive around and cause a little trouble. <laughs> yeah, and I can tell you they're not all bots because I'm one of the followers and I'm definitely not a bot. <laughs> so <laughs> we got some humans in the mix too. There uh, you go. So you're, I mean, building off of the whole influencer thing and leading up to Google, that's that's quite an interesting place to be. And I'm just curious what your career path was. You know, how did you get to this point? And, and really, was it all, was it, Years ago, would you have possibly imagined this is where you'd end up, or is this pretty much where you thought you would be? No, but I mean, when you're in college or high school, you know, like six jobs, like you're a fireman, a police officer, like I, what the heck's a product manager or any of these jobs. But no, I did not think I would be doing this. Heck, I'm a person who couldn't cut it at electrical engineering or computer engineering in college and switch to poli sci. So did that, but then was a webmaster at an institute on campus, which taught me a bit of like low-level programming stuff and got hired by a consultancy and did that for a while, did sales engineering, did product management, did solution architecture, did marketing, and now I do whatever I do now. But each of those kind of related, but they added a new skill, which is what I try to focus on is, is the next thing teaching me something new. I don't like horizontal moves. If people need to do them, rock on. I like trying to do something that feels a little bit uncomfortable or weird. And so along the way, I kind of keep up the consistent things are blogging and plural site stuff and working for InfoQ for a long time, being a journalist there and, you know, writing books and things like that and public speaking. So that stuff has stayed the same for whatever, 10 or 15 years. The jobs change, but hopefully each one adds something fun and interesting. Yeah. And the people that I meet who are not from classical engineering backgrounds are always the most interesting. <laughs> 
kind to me. I remember I uh, <laughs> I did a session with Stephanie Wong at, at Google's Developer Advocacy Group, and we talked uh, during the AAPI roundtable. We talked about a, a lot of people coming from non-engineering backgrounds who end up in technology and who you know have 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 really had really fascinating and interesting journeys. And I feel like that kind of broad background actually plays into the strength of what people do at the end of the day. So that's actually pretty cool. Um, the so landing at Google, uh, coming from VMware, was there was there a reason that you wanted to make the jump to GCP, uh, even after being a twelve time Microsoft MVP for cloud and and uh, just tell us a little bit about that part of the journey. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the part of the reason I joined Google was nobody expected me to, and I was uncomfortable with it. So I felt like it was a good opportunity to say, look, I don't know Google Cloud very well as an Azure MVP. I've used Amazon a lot, taught courses on AWS. So. I, I, you know, had messed with Google App Engine. I knew the reputation. It was like, I don't know this stuff well. This is an entirely new function that the company has never done. Let's go do that. That seems wildly risky and potentially career limiting. Let's try that out. And it worked out well. And, you know, it's still a company I admired, and, but it was a stretch assignment. And honestly, I think I've taken a demotion in title on my last three jobs when I made a change, but each one had kind of a higher ceiling. And you don't always know that when you make the job change, you're just kind of saying like, this feels like it might have a higher potential role. And so each time, I don't know, I'm trying not to title chase at this point, just what's interesting. Is it a good team? Can I make a bigger impact? And so far that's worked okay. Not everyone gets that privilege, so I get that. But, you know, an exec recruiter had reached out. I just finished some of the uh, integration between the company I worked for, Pivotal, that got acquired by VMware. Team really landed in a good place. I was feeling really confident with where they were. So when someone reached out and said, hey, we're building this thing at Google, are you interested? Uh, Sure. And even though it's in the middle of a pandemic or the start of a pandemic, wouldn't have changed anything. It was a very weird onboarding. But, you know, two years later, it's all turned out pretty great. Yeah, and I can attest to the the weirdness of onboarding during a pandemic because I joined SADA a year and a half ago, just about. And so I had the same, I probably had a similar experience where it's kind of uncharted territory and we're all figuring out how to join a company when we haven't met anyone, right? Yeah. Pros and cons. I mean, I think the the downside was you don't get some of the personal relationships. I think I noticed that until I started seeing people in person, it's a little more of a, just a casual work relationship and you didn't feel like you really knew the person very well. But the plus side was, boy, probably same for you. You got thrown into it right away. It wasn't like, oh gosh, you got to wait until you do this or that. It's like day one, you're in conference calls doing stuff because there's no travel. There's no distance between anybody. So that made it really nice as I got started super quick. So actually, uh, from your last answer, there's something I did want to ask based off of what you just said. Uh, you were working on a lot of different technologies and a lot of different platforms throughout your career. And I'm, I'm curious, given, given the focus on the product set that you're working with now, I mean, if you had, if you had to name some of the, I, I don't know if the right way of approaching it is products specifically or platforms or projects or assignments or anything, but what are some of what would you say are some things that stick out to you that you think have influenced uh, where your interests lie today and sort of what your focus ended up being today? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's it's funny. There was a uh, conversation recently on Twitter when we record this probably months ago, but for me, it was yesterday. And uh, it was a little bit about, and I think Kelsey Hightower had shared something about, hey, like, don't don't be down on yourself if you get, you hear that you're not technical enough. And, you know, people piled on. And it's a good sentiment, right, that you might get rejected from an interview or something because you weren't technical enough and you shouldn't, you know, none of us are technical enough. I don't know. I don't know everything. But at the same time, to me, that's also not an excuse not to keep learning. Like, to me, 
being a poli sci major meant that I always kind of carried a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Like I want to learn more than maybe my peers who did more in school, but maybe, uh, you know, aren't learning as much now. And so can I keep learning? So when I look at the things like being a software developer first helped me a ton because I'm just writing code and web applications. And I got into the application middleware space, Microsoft's BizTalk server, integration buses. And that was great because that was real distributed systems. That was things that are sitting on a bunch of servers. You're trying to connect the dots. You're dealing with asynchronous messaging and orchestration and compensation in transactions, all these kind of complicated concepts. I'm still just some dumb kid for the most part, but I'm learning all this stuff. And so then when it got into being cloud, I was like, all right, cloud, you know, I was playing with it in 2008, building demos on App Engine and Salesforce and Amazon and stuff. And I could just see like, this is where this is so much better than having to ask my IT person for a server or so much better than some of the process I've dealt with. And so being an application developer, starting to learn integrated distributed systems and then getting into cloud, to me, those all hopefully kind of scratch some of the same itch was you're just trying to build interesting stuff, but that interesting stuff is now more spread out. And that interesting stuff now often sits on clouds. So it's all been very related. It's not like I've gone from being a plumber to a butcher to an astronaut, but it's all kind of been building systems. And those systems for most everybody are now a little more complex. And I feel like the things I've learned along the way, most people can learn today. Like I would invest in those kind of ideas, invest in things like queuing, messaging, like those kind of concepts for distributed systems, invest in kind of cloud architectures, but learn enough sometimes programming to be dangerous just so you can spin up a Hello World web app somewhere. You do all that stuff, you're technical enough. You're in great shape if you pull that off. Yeah, and I do like the sentiment about, you know, cloud just making things easier, not having to request servers because that, um, I it just... Like I just get nightmare flashbacks about the days when I had to fill out a form and wait for a DBA for a week to spin up just, you know, a schema for me to test something on an Oracle database sitting in the closet somewhere. So not having to do that is very, very excellent. <laughs> yeah, I think we take it for granted now because now we're all the gray beards and gray hairs of cloud because we've been doing it for 10, 12 years maybe. But like go back 15 years and, you know, yeah, sure. Maybe some things were simpler because your choices were like physical box or physical box. And now I've got 25 run times for a container and all these choices. But the instant gratification, the ability to learn at your lunch hour and try out a database, you know, you and I could spin up a database instance in Germany right now and get it back in a minute. Like, that's amazing. What in the world is that? So it's phenomenal. I think we take it a little bit for granted now, but that's okay. Yeah, and someday we'll have to talk about this over a beer or something, but I actually got my start off in a different part of middleware, but it's sort of the same realm, yeah. so I'm sure we have nice. stories to trade at a bar someday. <laughs> uh, uh, although this is, you know, this is a Google Cloud SADA-focused podcast, so we got we to gotta ask those questions. Uh, from your perspective, why, why, do you see Google, uh, why do you see customers choosing Google Cloud over other cloud vendors? Like, what, what is it about GCP that from your conversations with customers, you are seeing that, that they are saying, oh, this is why I'm moving. This is so great. I love this. Like, what, what are those top things to you? And I feel like I should ask you that question. But, you know, at least from where I sit, uh, first off, everyone's using all the clouds. Like, I look at, look at the earnings report. Everyone's doing all kinds of stuff. All the clouds are doing terrific stuff. So fortunately for the customer, you can't make a terrible choice right now. I mean, you can make some terrible choices, but we don't have to call that out. But, you know, for the most part, it's hard to make a bad choice. There's a lot of really good products out there, which is awesome. Now, people do come to us a lot, and I think they look at 
Most big companies made their first cloud choice you know, five to eight years ago, right? And who were the big players? They made good bets, but now they're often coming up going, what's my next cloud? And my next cloud could be my previous cloud. That's okay. Or they say, hey, I, I cut my teeth on that one. I learned some stuff. We built some patterns. Actually, I don't even know if we set this up right, but what's the kind of modern next bet? What is my next generational bet? And a lot of folks then come here because they say, look, we're already using the open source that Google created both on the front end and the back end. And hey, a lot of our future systems are going to be amazingly data-driven, probably containerized and focused on, you know, delivery over large distances. Cool. Well, we're amazing with our flagship tech like BigQuery, GKE, AIML, Spanner, our network. And so when you kind of overlay what future company trying to build to what we offer today, there's a really nice match. And there's not a whole lot of technical baggage we have to drag to the table. I'm not selling any legacy services. I'm not selling any legacy components. We're just selling, hopefully, the, a great way to work today and the products that complement that. And so a lot of people see that. I was with a company yesterday and up in Sunnyvale for a visit. And, you know, they're doing some multi-cloud stuff, but they also realize, like, we want an anchor for that. And who is that company that, you know, we do want to put more with, of our data with, more of our compute with, and then stretch some of that to other clouds. And I think we're doing a really good job on hybrid computing and multi-cloud. We're doing some really interesting stuff on data, amazing stuff on compute. And so... I think folks are just looking at this as a very clean experience, kind of built for the cloud, during the cloud. It's really that sort of experiential stuff. Don't underrate that. That's uh, for a lot of folks, it's, if there's a skills gap, I need to be picking products and technology that make it easier for my team to just get stuff done and get the cloud out of the way. Yeah, and I think, I think that requires a good tool set, which also requires getting feedback from customers and all the way through people like yourselves to engineering. But um I know what an outbound product manager does, but uh, if you could give our viewers uh, who might not necessarily be familiar with that term, just like what's a what's a thousand foot view, what's a thousand foot description about what uh, outbound product, what OPM does at Google, and also to run in the coattails of that, uh, if you could share a little bit about the code to about the code to run journey and what that is and why it's so important. Yeah, I mean, outside in, outbound product management looks like goof around on Twitter and uh, blog occasionally, which is not entirely incorrect, at least when it comes to me. But the people who uh, work with me do much more work than me. But honestly, the goal of outbound product management when it was first started was how do you add leverage to the org as we grow kind of the adoption, fit of the products, build the systems to do a better job of educating partners, customers, analysts, the market on the product, help scale that out. But then also make sure you're pulling feedback in in a smart way. How are people learning what our competitors and customers are doing? How are people learning what analysts think is the next trend? Has it now become part of our product strategy because we're synthesizing all this information into something that says, I think this is where the next big bet is. So a lot of this is spending a ton of time with customers, a ton of time you know, with our field as well, and then trying to make sure those feedback loops are solid so that we build that all back in. And so... The area I cover is all the dev tools, containers, serverless, uh, operations, CICD, fun stuff like that. And so when you look at that whole journey, it starts on my desktop as I'm a developer, cranking out an app, building something interesting, packaging it up, storing it securely, running my tests, doing some continuous delivery to one of our you know flagship runtimes, and then running it on day two and repeating the whole thing again. And so what's interesting today is that journey, that kind of code to run journey, you can do it two ways, of course. I can do a purely best of breed and say, I'm going to use 
everything from my desktop and this and my tools and my tools and my tools. And here's 15 tools that make up my path to prod. That is totally legit and plenty of people do it. And then you're also seeing, of course, cloud say, that's cool, but we'll also at least have a kind of golden path that says, as you come through our platform, we're also going to try to integrate this really well ourselves and say maybe from a security lens perspective or a cost lens perspective or observability, we're going to kind of make this really nicely integrated. So pluggable, but also kind of an opinionated path. And so that's what a lot of our team's doing is can it be very extensible so you can bring your favorite IDE, bring your favorite CI, CD suite, your op suite. But then if you want to kind of just have the simplest paved path that we're building everything from, I'm starting to crank on some code and doing some local testing and emulation all the way through to, I'm trying to troubleshoot a production issue and need to resolve this in the next two hours. That's fun to have the ability to impact that whole thing and not just be a piece of that puzzle. Yeah, and the the unified platform approach is actually something that sticks out to me because I remember uh, for myself, one of the, one of the, Things someone has told me that I will never, ever forget for the rest of my professional career. I remember we were trying to pitch a solution to a customer and a lot of a lot of different vendors came in. Everyone had point-to-point solutions. And this was probably about 10 years ago. And I remember at the end of the meeting, the, the uh, executives of the customer walked into the pitch meetings and looked at everything and said, you know what, I don't really care about any of this. The person who's getting my money is the one who can make this all work together to the best. And... That's at least for me when I look at GCP, whether it's app, you know, application development or data, the approach of having a full end-to-end unified platform, but having the extensibility of leveraging other third-party tools at the spaces you want to, because for different reasons and having that not be too obtrusive, like I think that's been a huge thing that, uh, you know, that message has always resonated with me, and I I love seeing that throughout the entire platform. So, no, that's good. That's good to hear. I mean, look, we don't purposely run versions of every possible software ourselves. Usually we don't run a managed Kafka product. We don't run a managed MongoDB product. We don't, because to some extent, use Confluent. They're amazing. Use the MongoDB Atlas. It's it's tremendous. Use a lot of these products and bring them in if you want to use like, hey, these really great data services, this great, this great IDE. You love using CircleCI, like whatever you want to bring, awesome. That is great. There is a certain overhead at some point where you're like, okay, maybe I do for this workload or for this division. I want to have the kind of the simplest paved path. But again, I, I like the extensibility. We're trying to make sure we're helping you bring the best things from the ecosystem and we don't have to duplicate all that. I don't need to be better than those things. Bring it in. It's awesome. But then there's certain cases where I just want simplicity. I want to get a security thread through the whole thing because we're tracking all of your artifacts. We're tracking who built what and I can test that later. That's awesome. So I love the choice, but you do see us be a little more opinionated than others. I don't I don't think we should apologize for that. Yeah, absolutely. And for those of you listening, if you are having questions about what components to pick, we have a professional services group who would love to talk to you. So get in touch with us. Well, that's the, uh, you know, that's the funny yeah. thing about cloud. Because on one hand, look, you and I can swipe a credit card and spin up an ERP instance, which is mind-blowing. Yeah. Like that's also yeah. bonkers. And so there can be almost that illusion of simplicity. And it is simple to do those things, but to always do things the right way, the sustainable way, you know, that does mean like they should be calling you and saying, hey, Sada, come in here and help us set up a sustainable day two operations or help us build that paved path. Because just because I can kind of wire some things together myself, you want to do things in a sustainable way, not just the hello world stuff. And it's really easy to do hello world stuff. And frankly, it's easy even on self-service to do complicated things. But I personally love having experts with me because I don't know most anything and it's great to bring in people who do this all the time. So shifting 
gears for a second, taking taking a quick step back, uh, if we look at the if we look at the macro level of the technology landscape and and just at the economy, there's you know there's there's some things happening. There's a little bit of turbulence <laughs> happening uh, when you. When you think about how market conditions are changing and how that relates to technology and cloud providers, what do you see what do you see as some of the key points that people should be taking into consideration? What's what's top of mind when you think about these topics together? Yeah, I mean probably if I you poll people every year when you look at these CIO surveys, I guess always, you know, financial considerations is on the list. But I think now maybe it's a little more acute when you look at you know where we are in this time and place in 2022 of more stock market uncertainty, more employment uncertainty, global markets, all kinds of things. That if I'm an IT leader now, what am I trying to do to help make sure I'm setting myself up for success? Maybe weather the storm, maybe even emerge stronger on the back end of it. That should be my goal if I'm a good leader, not just how do I survive, but how do I then leapfrog my competitors in a year when things bounce to a great place? Like that should be hopefully your position. So. I would actually start my answer with practices. Like this is a great chance to say, am I building a product management discipline in my org, doing good user research, feature prioritization, A-B testing, maybe things I wasn't always doing before. So can I introduce product management to my org? Can I start doing some continuous delivery? So again, when I get on the back end of this, I can start to continue to ship value faster than my competitor who didn't focus on any of that. Or I can learn faster than my competitor because I'm shipping more often. And I'm doing it with an automated path to prod. So I'm not asking 14 people to come in here. Instead, I can tighten up and say, let's have as few people as possible doing some of these things by investing in automation, continuous delivery, right? All those kind of fun things. So first off, the practices. Look at the DevOps thing, however we want to define DevOps. Look at DevOps, look at product management, look at user design. I think that's a great investment. And when you look at tech tech stuff, I think this is where you are looking at the things that help you focus on auto-scaling for cost reasons, right? Can I quickly go up to what I need for Black Friday, Cyber Monday, because that's still important to my business, and then compress it down to bare minimum the day after? What's making that easy? What is giving me great cost transparency? I should be looking at tools that are not opaque, not other things that require me to have four-year commitments to get value out of it. What can I use today that shows me what I'm consuming? Can I even right-size automatically? And we're doing a lot of that with GKE. Or sheesh, I can even see my utilization at the moment, get an AI-fueled recommendation that says, you know, you should really shrink it to this. Click it, we'll do it. Like, that's amazing. So if I'm trying to be more efficient, it's not even about saving money sometimes. It's just spending it better. And so I think that's what most people even now are going to look for is, can I be smarter with the money? Can I be more strategic with it? And so I'm looking for things with great auto-scaling. I'm looking for open interfaces. This is probably not the time to double down on wildly proprietary software. I might be looking at, you know, bet on Postgres. Postgres is an amazing API to bet on. You can use it on a cloud service. You can use it on bring your own software, manage service, amazing stuff. Bet on Postgres, bet on containers, bet on modern practices. If you do those sort of things, especially during a downturn, you're going to keep retaining your talent. You're probably going to even attract some new talent. And at the same time, you've probably set up a nice base then when things do pick back up again, you're in an amazing spot. Yeah, and the thing about standards, uh, that that I think is a very good approach because if you look at new technology, when new technology is always released, you have things like Spanner or AlloyDB, which at first glance might seem intimidating, but then if you introduce it with, oh, but by the way, there's a Postgres wire compliant interface to it, then it's like, oh, well, I know how to work with that. I know how to dip my toe in it, so let's start moving with it as opposed to just being a little bit 
afraid of it. <laughs> at first no, off. you'll see the same thing with, look, there's plenty of things sitting in virtual machines that you should move to a serverless runtime. And even if that thing has a somewhat proprietary interface, if it gives you value, go for it. Like that's at the same time. Like if you do want to bet on a certain piece of proprietary software or a cloud specific service and it's doing amazing stuff for your business, go for it. Like don't get so scared by the sort of lock-in monster like what's giving you value? And so be smart, use open interfaces wherever possible, bet on standardization where it makes a lot of sense, just bet on good practices like continuous delivery and infrastructure automation, containerization, you're gonna be in great shape. So yeah, still be smart about the bets, but I don't know, hopefully whenever there's this sort of uncertainty that we face now, you actually have a lot of people who step up and do some really awesome work, they focus their work, they don't lose the other things that matter, but they really zero in on what, what matters most. Well, on that point, that's actually that's actually a very, very interesting, good point to end on because at, as it so happens, that's kind of all the time we have for today. But I did, uh, did want to give you the last word before we wrap up. So are there any closing remarks or anything you want to leave our viewers with uh, before we sign off? No, I mean, I think the major thing is, is don't use even this time in, in the industry and the market to say, I'm going to wait and see. Like there should be urgency here. You have a chance, hopefully for most leaders to not only do things professionally that are generational and setting up your company for the next five or 10 years. But individually, this is still an amazing time in tech. Like you and I, Brian, can do amazing things with technology today that were unheard of 10 years ago. So don't use this as a chance to just hunker down and hold tight. Instead, this should be a case where you, you, know, you lead from the front and you build amazing systems. You learn more about your customers than your competitor can. You're building a foundation of tech and skills. So Hopefully for most, whether they come to something like Cloud Next, whether they're coming to your events as well, whether they're doing online webinars, calling up their favorite outbound product manager for a presentation, it doesn't matter. Like get in the game and, and you know, play to win right now. It's an amazing time. I think people like that cater to Google Cloud. I think we cater to those who are either leading their industry or want to. And that, that's a good population. Now's the time to join those groups. Cool. Well, thank you for that advice and thank you for the time. Uh, also, if you're not following Richard on Twitter, you are absolutely missing out. So be sure to uh, be sure to log on. Uh, your handle is rsaroder, I believe. Is that correct? You got it. Yeah. So be sure to follow him uh, and uh, keep reading his insights. And also, speaking of which, we also have Sada's Impact Summit, which is our first first ever customer summit. It's going to be a great time. It's in Los Angeles this September 14th and 15th. So be sure to go to impact.sada.com to find out more and be sure to register and hopefully we'll see you there. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us today and thanks Richard for the time. I absolutely appreciated the conversation and I loved it. Love it, Brian, thanks. Thank you for listening to Cloud & Clear. Check the show notes for links to this week's topics and don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at Cloud and & Clear and our website, sada.com. Be sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app.